Let's get started uh, with, with prayer. Almighty God, our Savior, you desire that none should perish, and you have taught us through your Son that there is a great joy in heaven over every sinner who repents. Grant that our hearts may ache for the lost and broken world, and may your Holy Spirit work through our words, deeds, and prayers, that the lost may be found and the dead made alive, and that all your redeemed may rejoice around your throne through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, so last week, I mentioned that one of the major reasons that St. Paul wrote at least First Timothy and Titus was because of the false teachers who have crept into the congregations at Ephesus and Crete, um, who were wreaking havoc among the people there. And so in order to understand First Timothy and Titus then, uh, it behooves us to understand what the false teachers were teaching what were their character and behaviors, what was the fruit of that teaching, <coughs> and what was the doctrine as best as we can tell itself. So that's what we're doing this week. Um, we'll be looking first at the false teachers and the false doctrine, and then we're going to quickly take a look at St. Paul's charge to Timothy and Titus and how to deal with it, because that Understanding that is going to begin in earnest next week when we begin to dig into the gospel through the lens of the pastoral epistles. So our outline for today uh, for the false teachers and doc false doctrines, which we're going to spend the bulk of our time in, is going to be understanding the Jewish influence on the heresy. And, and by Jewish, I also mean like there's, there's some mysticism, Jewish mysticism in that as well. The dualistic influence on the heresy, then we're going to look at the source of the heresy and the fruit of the heresy. We'll begin in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 3 through 7, and then jump into Titus 1. I urge you, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith. Some people have deviated from the faith and turned to meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make assertions. Titus 1, 10 and 14 there are also many rebellious people, idle talker, talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Rebuke them sharply so that they may become sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths or to commandments of those who reject the truth. So the first thing that we see regarding these false teachers is that uh, there's an influence of, of Jewish theology and thought, and particularly Jewish mysticism at the time, they were, the false teachers themselves were part of a group called the circumcision. Uh, if you may be familiar with that term used, it comes up in the epistle to the Galatians and also the Acts of the Apostles. This is a group that was just causing trouble for the apostles all throughout the first century. <coughs> Their teaching involved uh, Jewish myths 
and endless genealogies that promote speculation. Now, in Ephesus at least, it's a little different in Crete, but in Ephesus we can assume that these false teachers were actually pastors. And we'll, we'll speak a little bit as to why we can assume that when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, in a few weeks. But they're, they're, they're pastors. They're, they're the ones in charge of shepherding and leading and caring for this congregation. And at that time, also today, but a little bit different, but at that time there was two sources which pastors would use to preach and teach from, and the primary source was the Old Testament scripture because the New Testament was being written, but the second source was that New Testament that was being written. So the apostolic teaching um, straight from the apostles as, the, as their letters and books would circulate, and they would use the latter, the apostolic teaching, to interpret the former, the Old Testament scripture. <clears throat> what we see in Ephesus and Crete is that they were reversing that to a degree. So their primary source was the Old Testament scriptures, not interpreted by apostolic teaching, but by... <clears throat> Uh, different myths that sprung up around Judaism outside of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, rabbinic commentaries, and if I had to guess, this is not to label myself a false teacher, this may be speculative, but probably claiming a special revelation of their own from God. And so through this, they would distort the apostolic teaching using these myths and, and other things in order to bolster their arguments. And one of the, one of the places that we'll, we'll see that is in 2 Timothy. It actually mentions that one, one of the specific times it mentions the doctrine of the false teachers is that they reject the future bodily resurrection. And that is likely in twisting the words of Paul regarding uh, holy baptism and the death and new life that, that comes about through our baptism. So they were, un unlike what St. Paul calls, calls us to, they were not teaching the foundation of the, the prophets and apostles, Ephesians 2.20, but they were teaching speculative theology. Now, uh, St. Paul notes an irony in this text. Um, I don't have it up anymore, but uh, he says... In, in the text we just read, that they desired to be teachers of the law. And yet, they understood neither what they were saying nor the things about which they made assertions. So they wanted to be teachers of the law. The problem was they had no idea what it even meant. Even worse, wanting to teach the law and not knowing what it said, they misused the law. And they did this in a couple different ways. Um, they, they misused the law in general, but then they also created their own laws to go, with, to go along with it. And we'll see that in, in our next sec section when we look at the dualistic influences of their teaching, because it comes out very much in the laws that they created for other Christians to follow. Um, in response to this, the, the issue of the law was so prevalent in their teaching that St. Paul 
stops in what he's writing and he reflects on what the appropriate use of the law is, the legitimate use of the law. Um, and what's interesting about this is that we know Timothy understands the law. He knows what the law says and he knows how it's meant to be used because we saw last week that he had been raised in a household by his grandmother and mother in the Holy Scriptures from infancy. And that uh, it was through their influence and probably St. Paul's that he was converted to Christianity and certainly um, very early in his Christian faith, he joined with Paul and went with him on almost all of his missionary journeys. And so he was getting this teaching directly from Paul. So when Paul stops and says, this is how we use the law, it's not to remind Timothy. It's because the issue is so important uh, that it's going to be foundational for the arguments that St. Paul makes throughout his letter. And so when he brings this up, we need to stop and pay attention because it's, it's important for what comes after. But he writes, we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father and mother, ratcheted it up a little bit there, but uh, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And that line is going to be important throughout the entirety of the pastoral epistles. That which is uh, sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel which was entrusted by God to Paul and the other apostles, and as we see, are then is entrusted down to Timothy and other leaders in the church, and so on. So, on the proper use of the law, the good, legitimate use of the law is to reveal our ungodliness. It reveals our sin and rebellion against God, but what it cannot do is produce that godliness that we need within us. It reveals, but it cannot produce. The false teachers were abusing the law because they in inverted its purpose and they burdened Christians not just with the law itself, but their own man-made laws. So how does the law reveal our ungodliness? The law, specifically, um, the moral elements of the law, describe the life that God intended for us. This is how life should be lived if you want to flourish. And when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, it corrupted human beings to their core. And now our nature, our very nature, is sinful. Thus, Holy Scripture testifies in the book of Romans, quoting from Psalms, that there is no one righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. So here's the connection between that, is that the law describes the life we have to live in order to flourish 
And it reveals to us that we are unable to do that. This presents a problem, right? The flourishing life is found in God alone. The law reveals, then, our self-destructive attempts to define and live a flourishing life apart from God. A flourishing life that we define for ourselves. And then, by pointing out our unrighteousness, it also reveals that there is a need for righteousness that must come from outside of ourselves. St. John Chrysostom says in his, uh, a sermon on the pastoral epistles that the law, if you use it correctly, sends you to Christ. For since the law's aim is to justify man and it is unable and it fails to justify us, it remits us to him who can do so. The false teachers inverted the purpose of the law by using it to attempt to justify believers after they've come into the family of God. You say you're a Christian, but a real Christian does this. This is how we know that you're a true Christian. We've got this list of rules that make it handy for us. Dualism is the second influence. But you'll see it's not so neatly divided because the laws that they came up with are going to be expressions of this dualistic influence. And dualism teaches uh, generally a sharp distinction between two things, uh, if you want to be very general about it, hence dual-to-ism. In the case of the pastoral epistles and the false teachers there, Uh, there is a sharp distinction between the material world, the physical world, and the spiritual world. And in its most extreme forms throughout time, but particularly in the second century when Gnosticism started flourishing, um, it, it went to the extreme that the material world is evil. In fact, the Gnostics would say that the creator god of the Old Testament is Satan or a satanic figure because... God, in his goodness, could not have created the evil of the physical world. Therefore, the spiritual world is what's good. And salvation comes through, well, Gnosticism, a lot of things, but we're not worried about that. Um, That's way more than what we have time for. Uh, to, To distill it down, salvation is an escape from the body because the body is evil. And that is not, despite what the cultural imagination of American Christianity sometimes leans into, that is not what the Bible teaches. So where do we see this influence in in the false teachers? Um, In in the two commandments that St. Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 5, the false teachers forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, provided it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. So 
So now we come to the scary word, asceticism. Asceticism is the practice of self-denial. And actually, Jesus teaches that this is a part of the Christian life. It's not bad in and of itself. We see this specifically in Matthew 16, 24, where he says, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross. By the way, those, those are parallel. We deny ourselves by taking up our cross and follow me. Because we are sinful by nature, however, we twist and distort the good things that God has given us. It is good to deny ourselves at times. Scriptural self-denial calls us to abstain from good things for a while so that our focus then can be on God's care and sustain for us. We don't rely on the good things that he gives us. We rely on God. And so if we are fasting or whatever that looks like for you, we're reminded in that self-denial that it is God alone who cares for us and takes care of us. But it's only momentary. The false teachers taught an abstention that rejected the goodness of God's creation as a whole. This wasn't just uh, fasting uh, for the sake of, of reminding ourselves that uh, God takes care of us. This was an extreme fast that completely required Christians to uh, reject certain foods. In fact, it was probably most foods, and, and it was a very austere uh, amount of food that kept them sustained uh, in living. It was very extreme. <laughs> so these laws are rooted in the rejection of creation. Marriage is a good thing. It is part of God's good creation. And to reject and forbid marriage is to reject the goodness of marriage and God's creating of it. The same for food. In fact, what's funny is that St. Paul actually addresses these two rules that he brings up, and he just completely skips over marriage. He's like, this is so silly that I'm not even going to deal with it. Uh, in reality... The scriptural teaching on marriage is clear. And Paul's teaching on marriage is clear. And so he picks up not the rejection of, of marriage, but the rejection of eating certain foods. So in, in response to the command for extreme fast, fasting, St. Paul makes two intertwined arguments uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. And again, I'll just read it to refresh our memories of the text. They demanded abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything that created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. Um. The first argument that we find in this text is an argument that food is objectively good because of God's word spoken over it. 
God created food to be received with, with thanksgiving. For everything created by God is good, for it is sanctified by God's word. And what he's basically saying is, is he's picking up the themes of Genesis 1 and 2 and saying, God created it and said it's good. Therefore, it is good, objectively. And when, when he uses the word, uh, sanct, the word sanct, sanctify and its cognates used throughout scripture actually have a couple different meanings, so it can be tricky here. Um, like, he's not saying that God's food is growing in holiness or being conformed to the image of Christ. To be sanctified in this sense is that it's clean. It's ritually clean. And it's, you know, set apart as being good. Because God speaks an objective word over it, it is true. Food is good. But then there's a second argument that he makes, and, and it's a little bit trickier. We just, we just want you to put the word bacon in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ba uh, bacon is good objectively because God's word declares it to be so. He did call a, a particular people to fast for a time from bacon so that they would rely on him alone and then when he removed that fast from them, they rejoiced greatly, enjoying the goodness of the gift that he gives them. Does that work? I have to rewrite that into the material. That, that somehow didn't make it. The second argument is, is a little bit different. The first one is the ob objectivity of, of, of goodness. The second one uh, deals with the conscience of the believer. And this argument goes like this. God created food to be received with thanksgiving, for nothing is to be rejected, for it is sanctified by prayer. So the question of eating certain foods was a huge deal in the first century. We see it in, in the book of Romans, the epistle to Romans, and the, epistle to, the first epistle to the Corinthians. And there he's, Paul addresses this issue of, are we allowed to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? There were faithful Christians who were just so put off by the fact that these, this food came by way of sacrifice to false gods that they weren't even sure if they should be able to eat it. Um, I'm sure you all have, at one point or another, dealt with that, that issue. <laughs> his, his, his response is that God's sanctifying word is objectively true. But... If you're still struggling to put your conscience at ease, you can do it by praying and thanking God for it. The prayer doesn't sanctify the food better than God's objective word. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that by praying that God would sanctify the food, a blessing over the food, a thankfulness for the food, that, that act of prayer and worship can put our minds at ease about the food we are going to eat. And as I said, as Christians in the modern world, we deal with this issue all the time, right? No, we, we've probably never been bothered by this issue. But there are so many other areas of life where the issue of conscience raises 
itself to play a similar role. So there is a universal truth behind this application in 1 Timothy that we need to get at. And he actually restates that truth in Titus 1.15, where he says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And left unchecked, a personal conviction, an issue of the conscience, can become a new law. And a rule that we believe others must follow before we accept them as true Christians. This often leads to division where Christ calls for unity. We are going to return back to that idea, but... In order to move along, uh, let's talk about where the source of this heresy is. Where did it originate? Um, Because Titus 1.15 tells us that the false teachers' consciences were defiled. We just read that. Leading them to lead people astray in the church through their false teaching um, and the influences of of myths and uh, this rejection of the physical world and, and, and everything else. But these influences that we've talked about, they're not the source of this heresy. They're merely the opportunity that that is used by the false teachers to teach this heresy. So where then did the heresy originate, the false teaching? In 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, we get a picture of it. But it's, it's, well, yeah, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, let me read it. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, we'll talk about this later, they are living in the later times in the first century. I'll explain that in another class. Some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. This is apocalypse in the truest sense. Right? This is the revealing, this is the pulling back of the curtain of what's really going on in Ephesus and Crete. And that is that behind the scenes, the false teachers are teaching the doctrine of deceitful spirits and demons. Their defiled consciences, mentioned in Titus 1.15, are the result of the false teachers' consciences being seared with a hot iron. And this is where our, our modern Christianese lectionary fails us. Because when we talk about having a seared conscience, what we typically mean is that um, someone has been sinning and they're unrepentant and they keep on sinning and eventually their conscience becomes numb to that sin. We have to be careful with that uh, because that's actually not just like the searing of a conscience. That's our natural state in sin. But we are habitual creatures, and so there's some truth to that. As we continue to habituate our sin without breaking the cycle by coming to God in confession and repentance and receiving absolution, we will become numb to the sins that we do. So, okay, decent theology. Not at all what St. Paul has in mind here. Because notice... Notice that... 
the false teachers are passive. They have their consciences, consciences seared with a hot iron. That raises the question of who is holding the iron. And the imagery here is one of livestock that are being branded by their owners. It's a mark of ownership. That's been a practice since uh, uh, at least 6,000 years. Uh, we, we have uh, records of like this being a thing where livestock gets marked for ownership as far, far back as we can go. And so who's doing the marking? Who's branding them? And, and interestingly, do I have it on a slide? I meant to do this one. Uh, interestingly, it's the New English Bible, um, which later became the Revised English Bible. They, they end up changing this somewhat. But it's the New English Bible that really captures the meaning of what's going on here in a way that other translations, some translations will get the branding part down. Um, but the NIB, NEB uh, just nails the meaning. Some will desert the faith and give their minds to subver subversive doctrines inspired by devils through the specious falsehoods of men whose own conscience is branded with the devil's sign. See, there's, this is a parallel passage to Revelation 13, 11 through 18, where, we, where those who reject Christ and follow after Satan and his false prophets receive the mark of the beast on their hands and their foreheads. And again, despite our cultural imagination, the text is not about microchips or anything like that that St. John would never have any knowledge of whatsoever because he is writing to first century churches, seven of them, in fact. Now, that's not to say God can't inspire things, like visions of things that he doesn't know, but it also has to be communicable to the original audience. Anyways, taking the mark of Satan's Ownership was not simply a future concern for the recipients of Revelation. It's something that's already happening, and we have evidence of that right here in 1 Timothy. And we see it over and over and over again throughout the generations until Christ returns. It is Satan marking his own. So what, what's, what's, the, what's the fruit? Uh, well, just to reiterate. So the source of this false doctrine is hell. It is Satan and his demons, and he is taking the false teachers as his opportunity to lead people in the church astray. Inevitably, that bears fruit. In fact, all doctrine bears fruit. Sound doctrine, which conforms to the gospel, bears healthy fruit. Unsound doctrine, sourced from hell itself, bears rotten and diseased fruit. The fruit born of doctrine is found in the character of the false teachers and how that character leads them to act. Because as, as uh, Pastor Nick mentioned, we are bound in our freedom. And it's our nature which does that binding. And if our natures are sinful, our proclivity is towards sin. 
there's one character trait that I, I want to finish today out by tracing, one particular one, because it's going to be a theme throughout. And that is the character trait in the rotten, rotten fruit of contentiousness and division. Let's, let's read 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 4 first, and then we'll get into it. Whoever teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that is in accordance with godliness is conceited. Understanding nothing, there's that irony again, and has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words. A morbid craving for controversy and disputes about words. This is probably why they love speculative theology. They love to argue. They love to debate. Speculative theology is a fertile ground for keeping the argument going in the sense of playing the devil's advocate, literally, in their case. Contentiousness, let's step back from the false teachers a little bit. Contentiousness is a defense mechanism for insecurity at times. Listen, I don't want to put that on each one here, but typically it's, it's a def we fight because we're insecure about being wrong. And what's interesting about this is that if we compare this attitude with what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, 6 verse 7, we get a, a very different picture from Paul. I'm behind on my slides. First uh, Corinthians six seven says the fact that you so background Christians are suing each other. If you want to learn about division in the church, read the epistles to Corinth. They are divided like no other, and they're bringing lawsuits against one another in the civil courts. And Paul is horrified at this. And he says, the fact that you have lawsuits among yourselves demonstrates that you have already been defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Ouch, Paul. That goes against everything in us. Why not rather be wronged? But imagine. Imagine what it would be like if we were so secure in God's love for us and his goodness towards us that we didn't need to feel the need to prove our value and worth to others or ourselves. Imagine, what if we didn't feel the need to prove our superiority over others to feel better about ourselves? What if we didn't have to mask our insecurity by making fun of that other political party, those other Anglicans? What if we didn't have to revel in their failures, but being secure in ourselves and who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us, that we weep and pray for them instead? What if we didn't have to be right all the time? There's certain things that we need to be right in all the time. But most of what we argue about, it's not it. What if we could recognize, like, Sufjan Stevens' song uh, sings, maybe the first and only time Sufjan's cited in one of these classes, that 
in our best behavior, we are really just like them. By the way, the name of that song is John Wayne Gacy. In our best behavior, what if we're really just like them? What if we're not actually superior at all? What if, in realizing that we are just like them, that our sense of beauty and worth is found in this? God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, let's be clear, there are things that demand rebuke. Uh, the whole of the pastoral epistles is written because there's something going on that demands rebuke. But our contentiousness breeds division. And this plays right into Satan's strategy from the beginning. In Genesis 3, he separates Adam and Eve from God. Then, when God confronts them, he separates Adam, well, the fruit of that is that Adam and Eve separate from each other. They blame shift down the line. Adam calls out Eve. Eve calls out the snake. And so the division continues. Cain murders Abel. Jacob, the whole life of Jacob embodies division. He's named after it, after struggling with his brother to try and get out first. And then he sows it into his family by favoring jo uh, Jacob, or Joseph, over the rest of his brothers. They set out to murder him and instead sent him into slavery. The kingdom of Israel itself gets divided before they are exiled to Babylon and Assyria. This is Satan's strategy from the beginning to divide where we do not need to divide. We are an ACNA parish. We are not an Episcopal parish. There are times when we need to separate. I'm not saying that. So if you're wondering about that, please put your mind at ease. There are things that we do need to separate over. But it's not usually the arguments that we find people making. I have to go through this quickly. No wonder then that John seven, in John 17, Jesus prays for the unity of the church. I ask not only on behalf of these here with me, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I don't know any other way to interpret this, this prayer other than the unity of the church is, one, a picture of the nature of God, the oneness of the Trinity, to, to the unbelieving world. Therefore, in the mystery of God's design, the disunity of the church has a negative implication for the mission of the church. I'm not saying we make or break what God does in people's lives. God, in, in his sovereignty and calling people to himself, he also uses means. We don't have that much power, but I, I, I don't know any other way to interpret so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The means that God uses in reaching others, in the means that God uses of reaching others, in his mysterious design and sovereignty, the unity of the church 
matters. And as Jesus taught regarding fruit, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth, commentary, and our tweets and retweets and likes and um, Facebook posts, um, out of those things. Uh, I forgot where I was. Sorry, going off on the commentary. So out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth and our tweets and our retweets and our Facebook posts and our likes speak. Back to the text. Here's how St. Paul describes the fruit of these false teachers. We just read they have a morbid craving for controversy. Uh, quoting from the ESV this time, quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, meaning we are automatically suspicious of one another, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived in truth. Morbid craving, a diseased addiction. They are like someone who is going through withdrawal and feels like they're disintegrating until they get a next hit, and that hit is arguing with one another and causing division. Constant friction. Chrysostom tells us this is an infected abrasion that keeps getting scraped over and over and over and is unable to heal. So, that's the fruit of the false teacher. Division, gangrene, disease. We'll end with this. What antidote does St. Paul prescribe Rebuke the false teacher sharply so, so that they may become sound in the faith. I urge you, instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine. The aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Paul isn't all about performative debate. He wants to see lives changed, and he wants to see the lives of the enemies of the church changed. His goal is that the false teachers convert to Christianity and place their faith in Christ, repenting of their sins. He wants the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit loves to do, and that is turn the enemies of Christ into brothers and sisters. He's so driven by this gospel because he's experienced it firsthand. 1 Timothy 12 through actually 17 is St. Paul's own uh, testimony where he talks about, I'm formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a man of violence, but in God's mercy. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, when he's thinking about these false teachers, he can't help but think that I was like that too. And what is true of St. Paul is available to the false teachers and to us and to the different political parties and to our neighbor or relative that we have already written off as being beyond the grace of God and the voice of the shepherd. It's available to those who want to destroy the church. It's available to all those who are persecuting the innocent in Afghanistan.
We all become part of God's family the same way. He pours out his love and mercy upon us through the Holy Spirit, which overflows us with the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. So no wonder then that he ends with the doxology. To the king of all ages, immortal, invincible, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Next week, God willing, we are going to look into this overflowing mercy and grace made available to us through the gospel. Amen.